Despite being a man of the cloth, Cardinal Giuliano della Rovere hungered for military glory. And in the summer of 1474, as he stood outside the gates of Città di Castello watching papal soldiers prepare for battle, it looked like Giuliano would finally taste it. Città di Castello, though nominally part of the Pope's personal domains, was ruled by a rogue army captain named Niccolò Vitelli. Vitelli ran the city as his own personal fief, and his independence had become intolerable to the papacy. It wasn't generally the habit of cardinals to lead soldiers into battle. Yet Giuliano's uncle, Pope Sixtus IV, had entrusted his nephew with the command. Giuliano refused to waste the opportunity. But he had to hurry. Sixtus also dispatched the powerful Count of Urbino to aid Giuliano with reinforcements. Giuliano feared that once the experienced Count arrived, he would take control of the army and deprive Giuliano of the glory. Giuliano looked at his forces and knew that many of these men were poorly prepared and ill-equipped. And yet, he didn't care. He would have victory, however bloody the cost. Welcome to Dictators, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. In this season of Dictators, we're exploring the tyrannical and corrupt reigns of the Renaissance popes, including Alexander VI, Julius II, and Leo X. This week, we begin our dive into Giuliano della Rovere, who became Pope Julius II. We'll explore Giuliano's tumultuous rise through the Vatican, his side of the rivalry with Rodrigo Borgia, and how he helped kick off over half a century of warfare in Italy. Next week, we'll explore Giuliano's pontificate as Julius II, and how, despite being a patron of the arts, he earned the moniker Il Papa Terribile by personally leading armies into battle. Coming up, we'll return to Rome. In the 14th and early 15th centuries, decades of division, controversy, and internal strife had undermined the authority of the Pope. They had also seriously weakened his control of his earthly domains, the Papal States. But by the back half of the century, the rise of certain Renaissance popes, with their ambition, corruption, and willingness to exert force, had once again strengthened the Catholic Church's power over Italy and made the pope a bona fide king. But these Renaissance popes knew they couldn't rest on their laurels. There was always another European king who wanted to chip away at their powers and certainly at their earthly holdings. Thus, these Renaissance popes became almost obsessed with consolidating, defending, and even expanding the Papal States, perhaps none more so than Pope Julius II. Julius II was born Giuliano della Rovere in Albisola, a village on the northwestern coast of Italy on December 15th. The year of his birth is uncertain, but was likely 1445. 
Like Rodrigo Borgia before him, Giuliano seemed destined for the church. Thanks to the Vatican tradition of nepotism, he owed his rise to his uncle, Cardinal Francesco della Rovere. Under Francesco's guidance, the della Rovere family rose from humble origins to exert extreme influence on Italian politics. Francesco was to the della Rovere's what Calixtus III was to the Borgias. As such, Uncle Francesco arranged for Giuliano to study at a Franciscan friary in preparation for a lucrative career in the church. And while we know that Giuliano took the holy orders and became a priest, little else is known about his life before 1471 when his uncle Francesco was elected to the papal throne. On December 15, 1471, 26-year-old Giuliano followed his uncle, now Pope Sixtus IV, up the ranks. He was elevated to the College of Cardinals, as well as later being named the Bishop of Avignon. As we previously discussed, nepotism wasn't new or scandalous in the Church, especially once a cardinal became Pope. The simple act of surrounding yourself with family was a way to consolidate power even if the relative wasn't qualified. Which Giuliano wasn't when he received his first major assignment three years after arriving in the College of Cardinals. But he was as enthusiastic as he was inexperienced, especially considering the danger involved. Giuliano was put in charge of settling the violence between two rivals in the Umbrian region of the Papal States, the Guelphs and Ghibellines. Specifically, Giuliano was sent to bring order to the towns of Todi and Spoleto. The Guelphs and Ghibellines were gang-like political factions who had been fighting each other since the 12th century. Traditionally, the Guelphs were on the side of the papacy, while the Ghibellines supported the Holy Roman Emperors. The original impulse for the fighting had long since faded away by the 1470s, but the factions and the violence remained. By the time the papacy got involved, the violence had become outrageous. In Todi alone, some 40 people had been killed. And soon, each side called in allied fighters from outside cities. Something needed to be done. Thus, Giuliano was put in charge of 3,500 papal troops with the mission to restore order. On June 10th, he entered Todi and easily arrested those responsible for the bloodshed. These arrests seemed to do the trick. Peace returned to Todi, and Giuliano moved on to the next city. As Giuliano's army approached Spoleto, the leading Guelphs fled in fear, allowing Giuliano to walk right in. The whole expedition was looking extremely successful, especially for a rookie soldier. Except for one little problem. By the time it reached Spoleto, Giuliano's army had swelled with exiles and partisans. These uncontrollable men couldn't resist sacking the city, despite Giuliano's objections. Luckily for him, Giuliano wasn't blamed by the other cardinals for the chaos. And whether he felt any shame or remorse for the unnecessary violence is unknown. And there's no evidence Giuliano himself saw it as a major issue either. He most likely simply shrugged it off as a consequence of military glory, 
which he was quickly realizing he craved. Violent fallout or no? After the easy falls of Todi and Spoleto, Giuliano was eager to capture his next target, Città di Costello. Città di Costello was dominated by an army captain named Niccolò Vitelli. And though the city had a papal governor, Vitelli was in charge and too independent for Rome's liking. Vitelli was formidable enough that Pope Sixtus hired the Count of Urbino to help the papal army subdue him. Of the many warlords and barons, the Count was considered among the best commanders on the peninsula. Giuliano, however, was not grateful for the assist. He likely believed that when the Count arrived, he would take over control of the army, thus depriving Giuliano of his victory. His concern was looking more and more apt by the day. Despite a promising start to his mission, now that he was facing his first real challenge, Giuliano was not showing himself to be a brilliant military commander, either in strategy or discipline. His soldiers randomly fought with the enemy at their own behest and usually suffered greater casualties. And when cannons arrived, Giuliano didn't bother putting them to use right away. Instead, he embarked on an ineffective attempt to divert water from the moats around the city. As the Count drew closer, Giuliano got desperate to show he could handle the fight. He ordered an all-out assault on the city's walls. It failed. The papal army was defeated. Perhaps he had been too eager to establish himself as more than just the nephew of the Pope. Maybe his judgment became clouded with thoughts of his name written in the annals of history. Regardless, the Count of Urbino arrived in the late summer and took the lead in negotiations with Captain Vitelli. Vitelli agreed to give up Città di Castello, and in return, he was fully compensated for his loss. Giuliano, meanwhile, failed to win any military glory at all. The Cardinal returned to Rome in September 1474 with his tail tucked between his legs. According to historian Christine Shaw, he had been outmaneuvered. He had showed no particular aptitude for military leadership, and he had also been clumsy in his handling of the chronic local territorial disputes. After the failed Città di Costello expedition, Pope Sixtus kept Giuliano off important papal business for nearly two years. It wasn't until early 1476 that he was entrusted with a papal diplomatic mission to Avignon, France. At the time, the papacy and the French were at loggerheads. Cadet branches of the French royalty had claims to the Kingdom of Naples and the Duchy of Milan, while the French king, Louis XI, had a keen desire to meddle in Italian politics. Also, the Pope had control over the French city of Avignon, which the popes had once used as their seat. And for some unexplained reason, Louis worried that Sixtus would hand over dominions near Avignon to the Duke of Burgundy, one of his rivals at the time. Giuliano was the natural choice to lead the legation. Despite his underwhelming performance at Città di Castello, he was the Pope's nephew and therefore trustworthy. And even more importantly, he had been appointed the Bishop of Avignon. Giuliano set out from Rome in February 1476. 
Initially, Louis attempted to prevent him from landing on French soil, but the king's advisors convinced him to let the papal legate travel to Avignon. They finally arrived on March 17th. Once settled, Giuliano began changing around church office appointments, trying to put the contentious city into order. Louis immediately protested. The main bone of contention was that Louis wanted his relative, Charles de Bourbon, to be the papal legate of Avignon. Tensions rose throughout April and came to a head when Charles's men barricaded themselves in the Avignon papal palace and barred Giuliano from entering. Giuliano responded by building siege engines in preparation for an assault on the palace. When word of the situation reached Louis, he sent soldiers to stop Giuliano. As the king's troops closed in on Avignon, Giuliano must have realized he was trapped. He was, after all, deep in hostile territory, facing off against one of Europe's most powerful monarchs. Other men of the church, even cardinals, had been seized by the French king before. Depending on how Giuliano responded to the king's men, a similar fate awaited. Or perhaps even worse, war between the Pope and France. Coming up, Giuliano scrambles to avert disaster. Imagine living with a secret so big that if anyone ever found out, it would change everything. Imagine carrying that secret with you every day, desperate to one day get it off your chest. Do you think you could take a secret like that to the grave? I'm Estefania Hageman, host of the new podcast series, Deathbed Confessions, the show where we dive deep into the most explosive things people have admitted to while drawing their last breath. From murder, fake identities, heists, illicit affairs, and even top government secrets. This season on Deathbed Confessions, we investigate cases like Frank Thorogood, the construction worker who claimed that the drowning of Rolling Stones founder Brian Jones was no accident. Margaret Gibson, a silent film actress who, while dying of a heart attack, confessed to one of the most famous unsolved crimes in Hollywood history. And ex-CIA officer Howard Hunt, who on his deathbed, confessed to playing a role in the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, airing episodes weekly starting July 21st. Follow and listen to Deathbed Confessions for free on Spotify. Now, back to the story. In 1476, tensions between Rome and France forced Pope Sixtus IV to send his nephew, Cardinal Giuliano della Rovere, on a diplomatic mission to Avignon to smooth things over. Unfortunately, Giuliano only exacerbated the situation, leading the King of France, Louis XI, to send troops to Avignon. Giuliano was trapped. Though he had troops of his own, they paled in comparison with the French. Perhaps his failure at Città di Castello had taught him that force alone wasn't always the answer. Or perhaps Giuliano simply realized that he was in the weaker position and had no choice but to negotiate. Whatever his reasons, Giuliano decided to meet Louis in person and try for a diplomatic solution. This was a risky move. According to historian Christine Shaw, 
diplomatic skill was never Giuliano's strong point, but he did acquire a reputation for honesty and forthrightness. Regardless, it seems that Giuliano managed to convince the king that he had no intention of handing over dominions near Avignon to the Duke of Burgundy, one of the main points of contention between the two parties. In response, the French king agreed to Giuliano assuming the role of papal legate of Avignon and ordered his subjects to work with their Roman leader. After all, as long as the papacy wasn't aiding his rivals, an alliance with God's earthly representative always looked good. In fact, the king became so friendly with Giuliano that one witness remarked that it seemed as if the two had grown up together. Most church officials in Rome had assumed Giuliano would muck up the mission in Avignon. So when news reached Rome that the talks with the French king were going well, many found it hard to believe. Some even assumed Giuliano made a secret deal with the king. But by the time it became clear Giuliano had actually succeeded, it was all old news. When Giuliano returned to Rome later in 1476, he didn't receive any particular acclaim. Instead, he watched as his status within the church waned. And how, while he was off in Avignon, another cousin, Girolamo Riario, became the Pope's favorite. Giuliano was no stranger to quarreling with his cousins, the Riario brothers. In the past, he had briefly been rivals with Girolamo's younger brother before the latter's early death. Now it appeared that the older Riario was out for Giuliano. There's no evidence of a personal motivation for the rivalry. Rather, it seems that the heart of the matter was competition for the ear of Pope Sixtus. And in the cutthroat politics of the Renaissance papacy, the struggle for influence was often a matter of life and death. Girolamo was the captain general of the church, effectively the commander-in-chief of the papal army. He was the lord of Imola and later Forlì and married to the formidable Caterina Sforza. He had plenty of power and was in a position to undermine Giuliano. But Giuliano wasn't about to give up on his ambitions. The cardinal started his comeback in 1480, thanks largely to the French king. King Louis XI was once again in a land dispute. This time it was with the German king, Maximilian I, over the sovereignty of the Duchy of Burgundy. Since Giuliano was last in France, Louis's rival, the Duke of Burgundy, had died, and now Louis and Maximilian were both claiming ownership of his territory. To help settle the matter, Louis requested that Giuliano broker a peace deal, which the papacy was eager to oblige. Because the Ottoman Turks were, as always, presenting a threat to Europe, Pope Sixtus hoped the two feuding kings might set aside their differences and embark on a crusade against them. Unfortunately, the diplomatic mission turned into something of a bust. While Louis was more than happy to accept Giuliano in his court, Maximilian refused to even let the cardinal enter his lands. Lucky for him, however, the mission finally helped Giuliano improve his reputation. It seems there was widespread sympathy for what he was trying to accomplish, and a sense that his failure was due to circumstances outside his control. Plus, 
he did manage to negotiate the release of a couple of clergymen, including a cardinal who had been toiling in a French prison since 1469. Giuliano returned to Rome in February 1482 to a hero's welcome. He was escorted to the Vatican and formally received by Sixtus. He was back on top. As Giuliano's stock rose, he began making alliances with various Italian powers, such as Florence, Milan, Naples, and the Colonna family. Almost all of whom were enemies of his cousin, Girolamo Riario. So when clashes between rival families or city-states broke out, it inevitably affected the cousins and ultimately pushed their rivalry to a boiling point. It was the summer of 1484. During a convoluted power struggle within the Papal States, Girolamo saw an opportunity to arrest Odone Colonna, a prominent figure in the Colonna family and Giuliano's ally. When Giuliano learned of the arrest, he accused Girolamo of wanting to bring the church to ruin. Girolamo snarled that he simply wanted to drive Giuliano out of Rome and then plunder his home. The pair was at an impasse. Until it became clear whose side the Pope was on, Sixtus had aligned with Colonna's rivals, the Orsini family. So he ordered Odone to be tortured and then executed. Giuliano's future looked bleak. As power suddenly shifted in favor of his cousin and the Orsini, it meant that Giuliano could very quickly be on the outs once more. But power and standing during the Italian Renaissance were fickle. So when Pope Sixtus IV suddenly died on August 12, 1484, miraculously the pendulum swung back in Giuliano's favor. Without the backing of Sixtus, Girolamo Riario's position was weak. He quickly discovered that he had fewer allies than he thought, and he wasn't popular. Girolamo's only hope was to engineer the election of a new pope favorable to him. Unfortunately for him, Cardinal Giuliano della Rovere cut him off at the knees. Giuliano and three other cardinals proclaimed that their lives were in danger because Girolamo controlled the papal palace. Therefore, they refused to attend the deceased pope's funeral ceremonies. In effect, this stalled the upcoming conclave. It was a shrewd delaying tactic, but also not unwarranted. Rome really wasn't safe. As was tradition when a pope died, the city descended into anarchy fueled by the feuding Orsini and Colonna families. Yet neither the Orsini nor the Colonna wanted to use violence to determine the papal elections. On August 22nd, they agreed to a truce until after the election. With Girolamo's supporters sidelined, the College of Cardinals ultimately elected Cardinal Giovanni Cibo to succeed Sixtus. Chibo chose the name Innocent VIII. Accounts differ as to how exactly Innocent was chosen, but it seems almost certain that Giuliano played a pivotal role in fixing the election. One version has it that Giuliano approached Cardinal Rodrigo Borgia and convinced him to join forces. During the dead of night, Giuliano and Rodrigo allegedly awakened several sleeping cardinals and made deals in exchange for their votes. When older cardinals awoke the next morning and learned that Chibo had been chosen, 
they felt compelled to vote along with the majority. However it went down exactly, Giuliano came out ahead with the election of Innocent VIII. Together, the two formed a partnership and marginalized Girolamo Riario. Girolamo became so isolated and unpopular that he was eventually assassinated. With Girolamo out of the picture, Giuliano exerted significant influence over the new pope and Italian politics. And in 1485, Giuliano dragged Innocent into a serious conflict on the peninsula. Various barons had risen up in rebellion against tyrannical King Ferrante in the Kingdom of Naples. At the urging of Giuliano, Innocent backed the rebellious barons. Cardinal Giuliano brokered deals with the barons and helped take command of the papal army to once more obtain his military glory. But the adventure proved to be a costly affair. Innocent soon ran out of money and was unable to pay his soldiers. By July 1486, it was all over. The belligerents made peace, and the Pope ordered Giuliano to return home. When Giuliano returned to Rome, he was warmly greeted by cheering crowds. However, the Pope was less charmed by the results of his warmongering. By proxy, Giuliano's influence with the other cardinals diminished as well. According to historian Christine Shaw, many in the Vatican took their cue from the Pope and began to voice hostility to the man whom they had once courted, now that his star was declining. Before it could decline too far, however, in July 1492, Pope Innocent died. As always, the death of the Supreme Pontiff presented the opportunity for power grabs, and Giuliano hoped that the upcoming conclave would swing in his favor. He still had some influence. Unfortunately, it wasn't enough. The man chosen to don the papal tiara was Cardinal Rodrigo Borgia. And before long, Giuliano and the new Pope Alexander VI would become bitter enemies. Outside of orchestrating the election of Innocent VIII, there is little evidence of Giuliano and Borgia's relationship. It appears as if, even while on opposite sides of the issues, the two were on friendly terms. Their feud may have begun on Innocent's deathbed, when the dying Pope gave away the papacy's entire cash reserve to his relatives. Borgia objected to the largesse, but Giuliano defended it. The two engaged in a heated argument that required other cardinals to calm them down. More important than the Pope's deathbed gifts, however, was the fact that Giuliano just did not want Borgia to be the next Pope. He believed the Spaniard to be treacherous, shiftless, and capable of violence, qualities unbefitting of a Pope. He was right. As Giuliano quickly found out, the new Pope wasn't intent on merely diminishing his influence. Rather, the new Pope gave every indication that he would stop at nothing to have Giuliano weakened. Coming up, Giuliano's desperate quest to depose the Borgia Pope leads to war. Now back to the story. In August 1492, Giuliano della Rovere watched in horror as Cardinal Rodrigo Borgia became Pope Alexander VI. 
For years, Giuliano's influence had ebbed and flowed, depending on who was Pope. But he knew that with Alexander on the throne, the possibility of influence was all but gone. As for Alexander, he was fully aware that Giuliano didn't want him as supreme pontiff. So he set about making Giuliano's life a nightmare. According to historian Christine Shaw, Borgia saw Giuliano as the major obstacle to his own control of the college and that drastic steps needed to be taken to reduce his standing. As such, toward the end of 1492, Giuliano began to no longer feel safe in Rome. This prompted Giuliano to leave for his palace in the port town of Ostia on January 6, 1493. Alexander grew anxious when Giuliano left Rome. As the saying goes, keep your friends close and your enemies closer. He sent a cardinal to Ostia to try to coax Giuliano back to the city. Giuliano assured the cardinal that he would return in a few days, but he did not. Wisely, considering that Alexander had several hundred guards waiting to arrest Giuliano as soon as he returned. Perhaps in response to Giuliano's enduring popularity in the College of Cardinals, or simply to dilute its ability to oppose him, Alexander created 13 new cardinals during the summer of 1493. Among the new cardinals was Borgia's son, Cesare. When Giuliano heard the news, he was at Marino, only about 14 miles outside of Rome, gambling and recovering from an illness. He immediately left the game, locked himself in his chamber, and was heard shouting with rage. Giuliano, along with other cardinals, protested Alexander's actions by refusing his summons to papal consistories, or formal meetings between the Pope and College of Cardinals. Alexander responded by issuing a decree which said absent cardinals would forfeit their share of the communal revenues of the college. But the cardinal refused to budge. Finally, on April 23rd, after months of back and forth, Giuliano got on a boat and sailed away from Ostia, not towards Rome, but towards France. The French were pleased to have him. King Charles VIII, who succeeded Louis XI, wanted to get involved in Italy. If you recall from last week, the French had a claim on Naples, but the Spanish had been in control of it for the last 50 years. Giuliano della Rovere encouraged Charles to go to war. He hated what Alexander was doing to the papacy. He knew that the expansion of the college was a blatant attempt to secure power over that of the cardinals. And he despised Alexander's zeal for gifting lands and titles to his children conveniently ignoring the fact that he was a product of nepotism. Regardless, he was convinced. If a French invasion of Italy was what it took to topple the Borgia Pope, then so be it. In September 1494, Charles sent Giuliano to Genoa in northern Italy to raise money and assemble a fleet to support his invasion. Meanwhile, Charles set off at the head of a large French army. Giuliano was back at Charles's side when the French reached Rome at the end of 1494. He urged Charles to oust the Pope and reform the Church. But Charles took a different approach. He decided to negotiate with the Pope. 
During talks, Alexander agreed to restore the offices and properties that had been taken from Giuliano and his allies and promised that they would be able to come and go in Rome as they pleased. But Giuliano didn't trust Alexander. So when Charles proceeded to Naples to finish his conquest, Giuliano was right next to him. The two triumphantly entered the kingdom in February 1495. As we discussed last week, however, Charles's time in Naples was short-lived. Alexander and other Italian city-states formed a league to repel the French. Realizing he could eventually become vulnerable, Charles abandoned Naples and returned to France. Giuliano was not pleased with this outcome. Not at all. Back in France, he urged the king to lead a second expedition. The cardinal boasted that with 2,000 Swiss mercenaries, he could capture the entire Italian Riviera. Eventually, the king agreed to an attack on Genoa and Savona, as long as the campaign was led and largely funded by Giuliano and an exiled Genoese nobleman. Not the best terms, but it was something. In early 1497, Giuliano and the army entered northern Italy. Almost immediately, the expedition floundered as Giuliano and the Genoese exile quarreled over strategy. After a few months of marching around and accomplishing nothing, the army disbanded. This failure seems to have finally dampened Giuliano's passion for taking down Alexander and conquering Italian lands. He wrote to a Milanese envoy saying that he had not really wanted to take up arms with the French, but had to protect his own life. He insisted he wanted to switch sides, but could see no way to do so honorably. He wished to live in Rome as a good cleric and good cardinal, and for quiet and repose. In other letters around this time, Giuliano seemed to suddenly come down with a fit of patriotism writing that he loved his homeland, that is, Italy, more than any other nation. He offered to leave the service of the French court if his offices and benefices in the Curia could be guaranteed, as well as promises of goodwill from Pope Alexander. Milan and Venice were eager to grant this request and put an end to the fighting. But Alexander wasn't ready to welcome Giuliano back with open arms. In fact, he responded to these overtures by going on the offensive. In March, Spanish troops captured Ostia for the Pope. Soon after, he issued a papal bull confiscating Giuliano's offices and benefices. Eventually, however, Alexander seems to have decided he'd proved his point and adequately punished Giuliano. Plus, his allies were pressuring him to end the conflict. So, Alexander offered a compromise. If Giuliano agreed to return to Rome within 40 days and stay in places acceptable to both the Pope and himself, then all of the offices and benefices would be restored. Giuliano agreed at first and returned to Italy. However, on his journey back, his distrust of Alexander rose again, and he stopped in the town of Savoy. For the next year or so, he nervously refused to head further south. A stalemate had been reached, until the feud between Giuliano and Alexander took an unexpected and anticlimactic turn. It was, as always, because of the French. 
In the spring of 1498, King Charles VIII of France died, and his cousin Louis XII succeeded him. Louis XII, besides inheriting the claim to Naples, also had a claim on the Duchy of Milan. Once more, France looked to invade Italy. King Louis wrote to Giuliano asking him to come to France. But Alexander, too, sought an alliance with the new French king, and he was dismayed by the favor Louis showed Giuliano, who was called a special friend. Alexander realized that one of the ways to get on Louis's good side would be burying the hatchet with Giuliano. According to historian Christine Shaw, by the beginning of September, all differences between the cardinal and the pope had been settled. After making peace with Alexander, Giuliano appears to have mostly sat on his hands with little to do. Though the Pope and Cardinal had smoothed things over, neither trusted the other. As such, Giuliano spent his days in Lyon and waited. Until finally, in August 1503, he heard the words he long dreamed of. Rodrigo Borgia, Pope Alexander VI, was dead. On September 3, 1503, Giuliano returned to Rome. He had been away in a mostly self-imposed exile for nearly 10 years. With Alexander gone, his only serious threat to power was Cesare Borgia, and both sides knew their futures depended on the upcoming conclave. Giuliano was now of an age to be eligible for the Supreme Pontificate, and he did not hide his desire for the post, saying, I am here to look after my own interests and not those of others. Before the conclave began, Giuliano was already one of the frontrunners. However, when the cardinals became deadlocked, they eventually settled on a compromise. Francesco Piccolomini, who became Pius III. But within a month, Pius died from a sudden illness. The cardinals were forced into conclave once more. This time around, Giuliano della Rovere was the only serious candidate. Some assumed Giuliano owed his position to bribery. One cardinal remarked that Giuliano had promised so much to so many, he would never be able to keep his word. Still, in order to secure his election, Giuliano needed the votes controlled by Cesare Borgia, who was still scrambling to secure his own future. On October 29th, the two sides made a secret deal, likely one which kept Cesare in charge of the papal army. The endless politicking annoyed Giuliano, who complained to a friend, see the problems which the mess Pope Alexander left behind him is leading to with so many cardinals. But if he hated the process, Giuliano loved the outcome. On October 31st, 1503, he was unanimously elected pope. At less than a day, it remains almost certainly the fastest papal conclave in history. Giuliano was now Pope Julius II. Legend has it that he took the name to honor Julius Caesar, ancient Rome's greatest military commander. More likely, it was just a variant of his birth name. Still, the assumption hints at what was to come. Italy was now a very different place than when Giuliano first came to Rome. Only Venice and the Papal States remained independent of non-Italians. 
Decades earlier, as a young man and newly elected cardinal, Giuliano had led soldiers in the hopes of winning military glory. Few would have guessed that three decades later, Giuliano would once again personally take to the battlefield to wreak terrible vengeance on the enemies of the Supreme Pontiff. Julius's election was supposed to be different from Pope Alexander's. Instead, the reign of Il Papa Terribile, the warrior pope, had begun. Thanks for listening to Dictators. Next week, we'll explore the chaotic reign of Pope Julius II as he continuously expanded papal territory. Among the many sources we used for this episode, we found Julius II, the Warrior Pope by Christine Shaw, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Dictators is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Juan Borda, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Dictators was written by Devin Hughes, with writing assistance by Joe Guerra and Nora Battelle, fact-checking by Adriana Romero, and research by Bradley Klein. Dictators stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rosner. 